you are listening to the Conversations for Change podcast with Dolphin Casper. Okay, well, here we are. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm really excited to welcome a friend, Carol Fox Prescott, and her friend, Susan Rosen. Uh, if you've been following the podcast, you'll know that Carol was a guest on the podcast, I guess, somewhere around a year ago. A and yeah, and, and just absolutely adore her. We, we met several years ago when she was in Edmonton, where I live, to do a, an acting workshop, which totally wasn't an acting workshop, but it was an acting workshop. And uh, it just, she felt like just kindred, uh, like family for me. And, and it was really sweet to reach back out to her to invite her to the podcast. And the fact that I'm bringing her back for a second visit tells you a little bit about how highly I think of her. And, and now just by, by association, Susan as well. Uh, so they're here to talk about their lives, about some of the work they've done, and in particular, a new project they're working on in the form of a book. It's really neat, uh, and I'm excited to talk. So uh, thank you for joining me both. Thank you. Mm. Our pleasure. Yeah. We were, so before we got on the, the the podcast, we were talking a little bit about how the two of you met, and I think that's probably a good place to start. Maybe we'll pull into the, the more distant past if we want to. But, uh, you know, the thing you're working on now is very connected to the context that you met within. So can we start there and let's find out where we go? Sure. Well, sure. what my memory of it is that my husband came, who was on the uh, adult education committee at our synagogue in Woodstock, New York, the Woodstock Jewish Congregation, came home and said to me, there's this fabulous woman who's on the committee and you should know her. And somehow we arranged to have lunch together. And then Susan just reminded me that when we were having lunch in a lo local Woodstock restaurant, um, Ethan Hawke was at the next table with his daughter and I had just seen him in his, his version of Hamlet and was so struck by his performance in that. Um, so we had this lovely conversation that I hadn't put it together. I didn't remember. Susan just, uh, just said I didn't remember that he was there. So that's a nice memory too. Mm. Nice yeah. way to remind each other. Susan? Yeah, because we had so much in common that we found out about in the first maybe minute and a half. And um, are really more like sisters in terms of who we are and how we relate to each other. Um, obviously, we're really good friends, but we have so much to share um, in terms of our expression about life, what we want to do, um, what we're interested in, who we are. Um, we're part of a group called the Bridesmaids. One of us wants to marry Mel Brooks. <laughs> We're the bridesmaids. She hasn't married him yet. But he's still alive, so who knows? <laughs> it could still happen. <laughs> and um, it's you know, it's at this age to have wonderful girlfriends is such a blessing. Mm. So I know I know Carol's background in in acting and and then or sort of organically moving into teaching in that space. Uh, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what your background is. I, I know that you wrote this theatrical piece um, that I'm sure we'll get into today, but yeah, a little bit more about your background, Susan. So I have a varied background of doing a lot of different things, entrepreneurial things, but since the really 
I guess, early 70s, I've been very interested in what people used to call personal growth. Mm. However, it has taken many forms. And I've done a lot of work, a lot of workshops, a lot of different things. And so in the 90s, I started an organization called Miriam's Well, which turned out to be a retreat center on my property. Sometimes I rented space in different places, and sometimes we worked in a yurt on my property, had wonderful presenters come, and we learned about each other. We learned about life. We um, constructed and deconstructed. Um, we related and um, argued. We, it was a, such a wonderful mix of allowing everything that wanted to happen to happen. So that's really where I spent a lot of time um, since the 90s. Um, I studied with wonderful teachers and I studied Kabbalah quite a bit, which is a kind of a Jewish mysticism. And so that all of that started to coalesce. It all made sense to me. Hmm. And uh, that's really how the project started that we're working on now was through that evolutionary process. And Carol, did you ever go to that retreat center? Have you seen I, it? Yes, I certainly did. I went quite a bit and then I wound up teaching there as well. Yeah. So so we, I, we, I taught an acting class there. So I was there once a week for a long time. And uh, it was, you know, just Susan and I just, every, every opportunity to, to find five minutes here or an hour there or, or whatever was a, was a gift, is still a gift. And so um, I, taught, I taught there uh, right up until the, the very end of Miriam's Well, which is one of the most dramatic things that ever happened. You have to tell that. Okay, story. yeah, we need to hear the story now. <laughs> can I, before you tell the story, can I say that Carol calls herself an acting teacher, but as you well know, Dolphin, it's so much more than that. Yeah. She's a life teacher. Mm. She, she's an, she's a, an ex expression of life. Mm. To tell the truth about who you are has a lot to do with acting, I'm told. Um, <laughs> however, it's good for everybody. So. No question. There is Thank no question. Much. Yeah. I want you to tell the story. About the about, airplane? About Miriam's Well, the demise of Miriam's Well. Oh, Miriam's Well. You know, I, I studied with this wonderful teacher called Brew Joy, who was like nobody I'd ever met in my life. He was recommended, you know, kind of on my journey, I found him. And um, he always encouraged me to start a retreat center. And so I was able to do that. I was in a very big house in Saugerties, New York, and we, we just did it, you know? And um, the minute I, I wanted to do it and decided to do it, the name came right through Miriam's Well. I had no idea, I had no special um, connection to Miriam, although I knew who she was in the Bible. Um, I, I believe that all the Marys that evolved through Christianity were actually Miriam's. And um, it is a gathering place. It's a place of nurturing. It's a place of um, being able to 
be in relationship with whatever happens, whatever life, how life unfolds. And to be able to know that no matter what, I can get through it. So here we are at, you know, we, we started locally with some local people and then just, I went out, I went for it. I went for the big ones who show up at all the retreat centers and they all showed up mm-hmm. and um, there were some wonderful teachers and it just evolved beautifully. So, And so Carol was talking about how it ended and oh, the there's some, there's yeah. seems, sounds like there's some drama there. So yeah, we'd love so, to. So, and, I, it, and it is it, it it absolutely solidifies the entire everything you just said. Yeah. It, it's just all okay, go tell the story. So the property was absolutely beautiful, but I never felt like I owned it. I always felt like it was it was leased to me by God, so to speak. And so, and we finally built this wonderful yurt on the property, which was great, which is where we met. And then I was having some some very difficult personal problems with my husband. Um, he had left. Here I am stuck on this five-acre property. I didn't quite know what to do with Miriam's well. I didn't know what was going to happen. And all of a sudden, one day, a tree fell on the yurt. Just I was there. Just fell on the yurt. And it collapsed. Yurt is like a tent, you know. It's not a huge structure. So much that was in it was deconstructed, which is so interesting to me because I found out that in order for anything new to come in, something has to be, something has to die. Mm -hmm. And that's really what happened. And it was very dramatic, but it got me out of there. Um, I kept the name. I do a lot of dream work. And so we meet, we used to meet here in my, where I live now, uh, pre-pandemic, but now we meet on Zoom and we do dream work. And then we do projects like the one we're working on now. And we produced this incredible play that what came about from Carol's writings mm-hmm. about Judaism and the women in Judaism. Yeah, so that's a perfect segue. So Carol, uh, maybe for anyone that that isn't Jewish and doesn't have kind of the background, uh, what was the inspiration for the writing? And and then maybe we can follow the thread of that to the current project. Yeah. The initial inspiration for the writing was that I, I found myself at a Jewish retreat center one weekend after not having anything to do actively with Judaism for 20 years, 25 years. And and clearly, clearly it was not an accident, but it kind of felt that way at the time. And one of our teachers wrote a little history uh, of biblical Judaism in the form of the, in the voice of an unknown slave, someone who, who was wandering the desert with Moses and Miriam. And it opened up something like, she said, I'm a 40-year-old woman. I've been wandering the desert for my entire life, and I will never get into the Holy Land. At which point, I burst out crying. And I I didn't know why. I didn't know. I just knew that she, that was me. And that whatever, whatever 
my life had been was that desert and there was there was no end to that desert but there was a way through and about two years later after really starting to involve myself uh, in Judaism uh, I, I was and feeling the need like who are these women who are these women that I, I, I learned stories about them when I was a child, but they didn't really talk about them. They were like, like, like in the movie, somebody's life or somebody's mother. And, and one morning I was, I was teaching a class at Boulder, Colorado, and I woke up in this gorgeous view of the Rocky mountains. And I, started writing and I did not do that then. I did not write. And this whole story about Leah, the Jacob's other wife, uh, came out of me. In a sense, I thought I was writing about my relationship with my sister. That was what I was consciously doing. I was, there was some, I don't even remember what, but there was some kind of issue between my sister and I and somehow I thought to write about, but it was so much more, and yet it was so rooted in my relationship with my sister, kind of both of my sisters in a way, without having a, a third character. And I was so pleased with it. I just, I read it to everybody who listened to it because I, I'm, I'm an actress and I do that, but, but it was such a treat and then, and I didn't, again, I didn't mean to do this, but I arranged somehow the next fall to have, to teach a class for non-actors in creativity. And it's the only time I've ever actually done a class like that. We, were, we met for about a year and we did all kinds of different creative endeavors. But one of the things we did was write. And while they were writing what they were writing, I continued writing about the women in the Bible. And I don't know that anything had given me more pleasure and I wasn't thinking about why or I just had to hear their voices. I just, and I didn't try to, I didn't try to update it in any way. I didn't try to change the trajectory of their lives or, or show them more or less powerful. I just wanted to know how do they get through what they had to get through who were they in there and again you know i i i read them a few times to people now i had i had um jewish venues to but, but i never thought of it any further than that and because Miriam's well, it's called Miriam's well, and Susan and I had become friends, and I said to her one day, I, I wrote a story about Miriam, and I'd love to show it to you, and so I, but then I, and I had to, I wrote those stories in the late 90s, middle to late 90s, and I had, I didn't even have it on the computer, I, I had to type it all up from, from the, the papers that I had, 
which took me a little while and I edited a little clip. Um, but I, we were on this airplane and that was interesting too for me because we were not just on an airplane somewhere. <laughs> we were on an airplane on the way to go see Barbara Cook in concert. You don't know who Barbara Cook was now, unfortunately. Barbara Cook is, for me, one of the greatest singers of all time. She was a Broadway star when she was young. And when she got older, she, she had disappeared for a while and then created this whole new amazing career for herself as a cabaret and concert singer. And no one was ever more joyous no performer was ever more joyous. For me, not only did she have the most beautiful voice, but she was, she meant every word she said when she, or she sang. And so she was kind of my ideal combination of, of actor, singer. And she, and she had a life. She was a matriarch. She was a matriarch. It was no accident that we were on our way to see Barbara Cook. Mm -hmm. She yes, embodied and it all. So Barbara Cook happened to be a patient of my father's, as was Florence Henderson and many other Broadway stars for some reason. They found their way to my father. And so I had known her most of my life. And um, my son was the artistic director for Kansas City Rep Theater in Kansas City. And he had invited her to do the gala, big fundraiser. And she was performing there. And when I told Carol that, she said, I'm coming, I'm coming. So that's why we were on the airplane, was to go see Barbara. And we did. Always so meaningful to me. So Susan says, we, we said we have, we have to do something with this. And what we did initially was... We gathered together a group of actors that I had been working with for, for years. I think we were still calling them actresses then. And, and we invited them to Miriam's Well for a weekend and did a reading in the yurt and invited a group of women. We, I think we had 18 women, actually. 18 is a very powerful number in Judaism, so I, I, I remember that. And and they were not all they were not all Jews. They were just women that we had invited. And the reading went so well that the women stayed and talked and talked and talked. All of us together, actors and and audience, about how it it affected them. And there was there happened to be a Episcopal minister in the room and she said I want you to come and do this at my church and and that was the beginning and then we just we we performed in churches and synagogues and schools a couple of theaters as well but mostly it was it was all kind of in family stuff and one would lead to another and we kept that company together for about four years, which was amazing and not, not the easiest thing to do. But we did it, and, and they were magnificent. The actors were magnificent. And, uh, and it was, 
we found we were, of course, not the only people, men and women, who needed to hear from these, yes. from these archetypes, from these, these mythical figures who have yeah. influenced us all our lives without knowing who and what they were, what they stood for, what they cared about. We always had a talk back afterwards because people needed to speak afterwards. They needed, they related so well to these characters who literally were brought to life for them. And it was dramatic enough that it had the power of theater, but it, it's everybody's story. I, I don't care what gender you are. And everybody's gone through what these women went through. And we needed to hear the voice. And so did the men who grew up with these women in their lives. And so the talks could have gone on for days <laughs> because everyone really wanted to share in this experience, including the actors. Can so it was amazing. And it wasn't an elaborate production, but it was enough to just bring us into this incredible space together. And that's where time was not linear. Mm -hmm. That's where we were in this divine energy, for lack of a, a different way of speaking about it. It was, we were all, we were all in present time and we remembered, we remembered what we knew before we were born. Mm -hmm. So I'm, what I hear in, in what you're both sharing is this, this mingling of the the personal story and narrative, and then the 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 narrative or story of of humanity, and we can even go deeper where it's the the story of life itself. Exactly. And and I'm curious about the the discussions after. I'd love to hear about the performance as well, but I'm curious about the discussions afterwards. Were there any particular themes or insights or or kind of commonalities that kept coming through time and time again? Like, I'm really curious about what people wanted or needed to talk about after watching it. The thing that I remember the most, it was, we didn't do the whole play, but I did a reading of a piece of the play at um, a men's prison. I did actually a number of them later, but but this was the first time. And I was kind of scared because here I was, what what did this have to do with them? And, you know, but I, I'd been asked to do it. I was going to do it anywhere I'd been asked to do it. And this beautiful young man sat very quietly throughout the whole thing, looking down. I didn't know if he was listening or he just wanted to get out of there. And when I finished and I, and I asked if anyone wanted to say anything, he said, referring to um, to Miriam and and her mother her mother putting Moses back in the ba in the in the basket in the water with, as a baby he said i put my baby in the river the day i decided to drink instead of take care of him And the fact that something that something could hit somebody so deeply 
not a sophisticated theater person, not, I don't know if he, you know, if anybody had ever read to him before. All I know is that he knew, and he knew even more than I knew, in a sense. These stories are extraordinary. And we, I think because if you do grow up with them, you kind of go, well, I know that story, or what does that have to do with me, or any, you know, all those old people back there. But these stories that have lasted for thousands of years mm-hmm. are us. Yes, that's the beauty of um, the recognition. And I think that's what we, uh, that's what I saw mostly in the theme was the recognition that there's no difference between what I just saw on the stage and those characters and me. That's me. The scene in that man who was in prison, it was another man who just cried. He just, and he was talking about his mother. There were so many ways to identify with these characters and these women. And it was the first time that any of them had heard them. You know, who goes through life imagining that they're, you know, a a part of a Greek myth or a story in the Bible or whatever. Um, Maybe there's some kind of recognition here and there. But this was so powerful. And it, it took up every ounce of oxygen in the room. So we were all breathing it together. And I think that's what was most prominent about it was thank you for for bringing this to us. It didn't matter if people were Jewish or Christian or nothing or agnostic or whatever, it didn't matter. It was the feminine voice that so needed to come through that had been pushed down and not allowed to be for so long in many ways, politics, you know, I mean, you know, it's been a hundred years since women could vote and they even then black women couldn't vote. So it's amazing. And to be able to put oneself in those shoes to see, oh, that's what I've been struggling with. I've been struggling in my marriage. I've been struggling with my kids. I've been struggling with what what should I do? What should I choose in life? Because it might hurt somebody else. And how do I live with that? And all of those stories. And it was the identification process that made everybody want to keep talking. Mm. I love that, you know, with theater in particular, it's, it's, it's an art, of course. And, and it, I, what I see it doing is it's it's implicitly telling the story of something that can land implicitly and explicitly in us. So like I can I can receive the the intellectual understanding of what's going on there. I can I can relate to it. I can connect dots in my mind as a person. But there's also this other level that's more visceral. It's like when you're when you're in a room and and an amazing performance is occurring it goes well beyond any of those connecting of dots. It's like you feel this story that, that is like the undercurrent of life. And, and that's that piece, like Susan, you were talking before we even started about time is nonlinear. You know, I think some people can, can really get that. Some people kind of may scratch their head when they hear a, a sentence like that. But 
for me, the, the way I try to help people make sense of nonlinear time is when, when something that appears to have nothing to do with your life touches you and moves you where you just, you know something and it, it's not rational. It's not logical. It just reaches you and you're in relationship with something meaningful about life that precedes any kind of understanding. And, and that's why art is so brilliant at that is that it, it, it sort of bypasses the, the logical mind. I would love to hear a little bit more about, you know, the, the process of bringing the writing to life in theater and like anything about the relationship between the creative process, like Carol, for you, this, this, this writing that has seemed to kind of come out of nowhere that, that was through you more than by you. And then the process of bringing that into a theatrical project, like I'm curious about that. And then I would love to actually talk about the book that I know is a part of this as well. Yeah. Well, it was gradual. It was very gradual. You know, when we, we did that reading at Miriam as well, we had no plans. We had no, we had no idea. And, and we all sat, including the, I, I spaced the actors among, among the audience. So, because right away, I, w I wanted everybody to feel like they were part of it. And I, and, and I asked the actors to refer directly to people, so there's no separation between actor and audience. When we did it at the Episcopal Church, that first one, people still had scripts in their hands. But I will say very proudly that I train actors to be able to act very well with scripts in their hands, that the script is simply an extension. That's where the words are. Okay. And it's not, it, the words could be in your head or the words could be in your heart or the words could be on the page. And that's just where they are. So it was a very vibrant performance, I remember, that second performance. And I think everybody was just so excited to be doing it again. But with each performance, they knew it a little better. And I started saying, oh, why don't you go over here and do that when, when you do that? Or why don't you sit with her when you do that? Or, you know, and, and it started to become somewhat directed piece. It was always very loose and it was always very dependent on the audience. In the very beginning, we always did it in a circle because that's the, the way it started. We liked it, and the rooms lent themselves to it. When we got into bigger spaces, we were in congregations. We were, you know, where you could pick up the seats and make them into a circle. So we, we, just, we just adapted to what was there, and what was there taught us what it needed. And, we, and the, actor, the actors were so in love with each other <laughs> as a result of working together uh, on the piece. And it was very important to me that even, even the characters who in the stories have difficulties with each other, that they, they come to find out more, that, that, they, that, that, that life goes beyond those difficulties. And they 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 start to recognize the value of, of the other person, or or even um, Leia speaks after Rachel's death about how much she misses her sister, and 
and and how their lives could have been different and she recognizes mm-hmm. what her part in what went on yeah and and the evolution of it was that yes we had these actors who performed it in a lot of different places but carol also went to different places and um used other people, people who were just people. They weren't actors. We had to do other performances. And so she initiated them into the ability of imagining that they were these people. And, and, And it was almost effortless. I don't care who you were. So it wasn't just these actors that we used all the time. They started it. They are the ones who... Really, I mean, they planted all the seeds, but it was part and parcel that anyone could do this. Mm. So when we decided to do to get to this project, which was a Haggadah, uh, Carol and I were in, in we're talking to the rabbi and I don't know, we came up with this thing of, well, we've done the play and now what? Well, we really wanted to hear from these women from the um, from Exodus, we did, we wanted them to come to life, but it was just Exodus, and this is Exodus. We um, practice it once a year at the Passover Seder. Uh, we tell the story of moving from slavery to freedom, and we tell it again and again and again, so that we really start to get it. And every year, it's a little different. There are many Haggadahs. We wanted this to be in the voice of our mothers. And that is the main umbrella of everything that we do is in the voice of our mothers. So we translated it to a workshop that we did at the synagogue with synagogue people. Turned out to be just women. And I think it needed to be. And um, we took them, Carol especially, uh, through different processes and and uh, workshop type things, practices, to get themselves into the frame of mind where they could write as if they were these characters, Leah and Rachel and Rebecca and Sarah and Miriam. And we just sat at long tables and started to write. And we would do some exercises in between, and then we started to write. And there was so much written and then eventually Carol and I edited it and, you know, became, and we had a wonderful person do the graphic design. And we tried to do pictures, um, art pieces, but somehow it just didn't work. And what the woman who put this book together did was she took the pictures of the actresses, of the actors that we had taken all the way through and that's what's here. So that's the connector. And it lives in this big wide space that can grow wider. It can be smaller. It can, it is elastic. And so that's the power of it. And that's the power of the Haggadah. And this Haggadah is. Let me, let me, yeah. Sorry, let me just yeah. throw in that this, this, this book has is is a Haggadah in that it has all the parts that a traditional Haggadah requires to make it a Haggadah. 
And we were very, very careful about that. We worked with our Rabbi, jo uh, Rabbi Jonathan Kligler of the Woodstock Jewish Congregation, uh, worked with him um, very happily. Uh, and uh, he made sure that, that it was all, all according to law. And, but the story is told through the voices of the women of Exodus. It's very interesting, you know, in Exodus, it really does seem like when you go back and look at it, every time the men don't know what to do, things get so bad they don't know what to do, there's a woman who pops up, who fixes it. And then they go on to the next thing and there's somebody, oh, it was easy, it was, it was, it was just doing, doing that. And then we added to it, we, we, we created some unknown slaves, we created a wise woman who helped Moses um, at the well after, after after the burning bush when he's still totally freaked out and to get him back to uh, to Egypt. Um, so part of it is it's absolutely story by story, and part of it is made up. Some of it is from the word is midrash, which is uh, which is the way that the ancient rabbis would interpret things in Torah by telling stories about them. So storytelling about storytelling is a really important part of Judaism. Yes. And yes. so I, I feel very proud that we come from come to that. Yes. Yes. This is this is all midrash. Yeah. So I, I just got this picture, this literally picture analogy in my mind of you know, it, we have an image and we think we know what the subject is, but if you look at the negative of the image, everything flips, right? The, the subject becomes the space and the space becomes the subject. And in a certain way, that's what I, I kind of feel you're doing is like this, this external kind of peripheral piece of these stories has been made the center and we, we get to feel and be with the richness and the meaning and, and the, 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 the real function of what has not really gotten its its attention and, and its space. I'm curious, you know, whether you agree with my kind of reading of a metaphor on that or not, the relevance of this story as a practical piece in, in present day culture, like how do you see the, the voices and the message and the stories here? Uh, how are they meant to be or land in this world as it is now? Or, or what do you see is relevant to talk about in that? Well, we are all enslaved in some way. We all have our own form of slavery, um, not literal. Um, much of this is very metaphoric. And that's what is happening here. Um, the story of an unknown slave, the story of a woman at the well who meets Moses, who is actually, in my mind, taken from a woman we actually know, who is 90 some odd years old right now, and would have loved Moses. Hmm. Um, she would have been great. Um, so it all came together time again. No, there wasn't linear time. Time just kept folding on each other. And so it's relevant today. All, all of what they had to go through is relevant today. Sarah, who couldn't conceive, Many, many women, many couples really can relate to that, what that's like. And um, 
brothers who fought each other, um, sisters who married the same guy. I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be literally that, sure. but all of that jealousy that comes in and and um, friends and the 10 plagues. So part of the story is they're trying to leave. You know, Moses was told by God, you got to get them out of here, right? You're going to leave. Nobody really wanted to leave. Nobody wants to leave what is known, no matter how bad it is. But something happens to say, okay, you got this time. We got to go. We got to go. The and tree so, falls on the yurt. Yeah. So it's all so how you walk into a sea, into the ocean, and know that you're you might drown. How how do you trust? Nobody knows anything, but you keep your eyes open and your heart open, and it's like spiritual Pilates, <laughs> this core that comes out when I can say, I can do this. I'm going to still live because life is miraculous. And so, yes, we all have our Michigas, our stuff. And we're going, we're doing it anyway. And there's always a Pharaoh. We just had one, didn't we? Mm. In, at least in the United States, we had one. And um, there's always a Pharaoh. And there's always people who don't want to go. And there's always somebody who has a better idea and is going to try to share it with other people. So it's incredibly relevant today. There, there are two things that occurred to me when you asked the question. One is it, is, it is our obligation as Jews to tell this story every year, to teach it to our children, so that when they ask, what's this all about, they can begin to understand there's a difference between being enslaved and being free, whether it's a literal enslavement or, or a metaphoric one. That it's that it's rooted in the 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 the, the human journey, rather than just a bunch of rules. The the, the rules kind of either work to keep us together or apart, but the journey is what we're on. And the other thing that I thought of was just exactly where you ended, Susan. If we don't remember in this in, in the United States, if we don't remember what we set out to do to form a more perfect union, it's all gone. Remembering who you are, remembering how it happened, remembering how it's it, it it went it went away, remembering how you gathered it back, so that it's it's just time folding in on itself. Whatever the specifics are, they're just the specifics. It's true. You know, when when we teach our children, we want to protect them. We want them not to have pain. As a mother, I've, I have five kids. I know what that is. But the ability to let them fall down and learn for themselves by putting them in a basket in the Nile River to see what happens because I trust life 
not that it's going to turn out well. Any rite of passage has within it somewhere else to go other than my outcome. But, and it's trusting that that is exactly what life is about and to teach children all the way through. And that's why these stories are so wonderful because my grandson asked the other day, asked his father, what's a zombie? <laughs> and, um, and I saw um, my son-in-law try to protect him, you know, oh, it's a made up thing and this and that. Well, where did he hear it from? His cousin, who's another one of my grandchildren, was she's four years old and totally into zombies. She's not afraid of them. She wears these great costumes. You know, she's she's so her imagination is so huge. Mm. And so that's it. How do you know what to say to that? You know, and I said to Clay, if you had asked him, where'd you hear that word? Where'd you hear about zombies? Then obviously Evelyn would have been outed. And, you know, we would have known where it came from. And it's 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 a conversation to have rather than try to protect them mm-hmm. because Clay was scared of zombies, you know, or didn't want Bo to feel badly. So just even that much. Um, the plagues, there's 10 plagues in the story. You know, how much, I needed the tree to fall on the yurt before I would move. And I needed to get out of there for many reasons. And Miriam's well was going to move with it. And a a wonderful Buddhist guy brought the property and he added what he had to it. So all of this amazing, as Carol said, the journey of it all. If I have the courage to keep putting one foot in in front of the other and walk through this, as, as it's called, the Sea of Reeds, the Red Sea, to the promised land, which guess what? Only three people of those hundreds of thousands went and got into this so-called promised land. Nobody else made it. And it's not a punishment. It's it's about the journey. And I don't know that we ever really do get to the promised land because that's such a an idealized version of life. Mm. Life has hard stuff. Yeah, I can I can hear the the courage required to trust life and you know to me putting Moses in the water that that's the quintessential metaphor for trusting life and that the, there is something that that we all know in that 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 actually we need to make peace with all of the bad ways it can go to really be in life rightly. Uh, but the question that I'd really like to kind of get more granular in is the difference between the stories that have been told, especially in terms of, you know, the Old Testament, the Torah, and and this interpretation that, that very specifically and, and uh, consciously brings women into the center of the telling of the story. What how is that different? Because all of the themes that you just mentioned feel very broadly humanistic. And, and I also know that something different happens when women have voice and, and, and in, a, in especially Western culture, well, cultures across the world, that has not been the case a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so something's being lost and missed and, and there's, there's consequence to not having room and not empowering women's voice. You're taking it upon yourselves to do so how does that make a difference? If you just 
imagine for a moment and any any scenario of not being included any scenario of i'm not interested in what you have to say about this uh just just do do your job and follow us doesn't matter how smart you are it doesn't matter how i, I don't kind of can only matter how beautiful you are but that's that's that's, that's another that's another answer um you we i i will say we cuz i'm talking about my generation cuz it happened to our generation to my generation we grew up not really knowing what was wrong we just grew up in this culture that said we could be teachers or secretaries or or or, or mothers and not even both mothers and teachers or mothers and secretaries we grew up kind of vaguely knowing something was wrong but not being able to put words to it and then in my life one day gloria steinem said no that's that that's not that's not right or betty friedan said or bella abzug said or I was I was just in my very early 30s when I just was hit probably just at the time I might have started realizing something anyway but I was hit by it and I was I was in wonder of it and starting to realize all the all all the places where I did not live and i still battle with many of those places i think we all do you know you can't you can't be trained in one thing and forget it about it completely but to stay as conscious about it as as we can is is the journey and so so to you know susan was just telling me about somebody who wrote about um the women in the in the um in the odyssey, odyssey. In, in a similar way and 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 the the book the mist of avalon it, it seemed that there was a great um feminist delight in the in 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 the in the, in the early 70s of doing it about the the arthur uh, stories and and um just to go wait a minute what it, what what were they thinking what were they doing and it's taken so long and it's not you know by the time i got to write these stories jewish feminism had really taken off and there were many 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 uh w- women who were rabbis women who were presidents of congregations women who who were high up in organizations and i don't i don't know if they needed to hear these voices as much as i did but i needed to hear the voices I needed to hear I'm in this life I know I know what the boundaries are what can I do inside these boundaries 
and when can I stretch these boundaries? And that allows for the boundaries to keep opening up more and more and more. So we have a much bigger Mishkan, which is the place where God dwells, that we can enter in and know that we're allowed to be there. Because hmm. I grew up with Father Knows Best and Leave It to Beaver, and those women were um, vacuuming in shirtwaist dresses, high heels, and pearls. Are you kidding me? I always knew that was ridiculous, but it was all I had to look at. Mm. You know, I like TV. It would, so, sort of took me away. And But I knew then that, that was, they were not the best role models. They were nice people, but they were not the best role models. And if there was a man who got up from the table and took his dish to the sink, I was amazed. <laughs> who did that? But because when I was in college, we were starting to burn our bras, et cetera, et cetera. I could raise my sons to, to learn how to do the laundry, to learn how to do the dishes, to be helpers and partners as opposed to hierarchical things. And I'm very proud of that. When I see them and I see what they're doing with their own kids, that makes me feel there was real progress here. I I love the the, the like the telling of a a story like an archetypal story that that clearly represents something real and true about life, and to do it in a way where it doesn't become a kind of fluffy fantasy, right? It's it's like like you spoke about the promised land. The promised land might exist, but not as some static final destination. It's like the real like to know you're included in the in the realm within which God abides mm -hmm. is really something. Mm -hmm. And then there's still life to live, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that when, when, when we really are moved by story, I think it's because it's not just this surface idealization of something. It's, it's the full inclusion of life. It's the recognition of the dark and the difficult and the invitation and empowerment to step into all of it, like all the colors, all the flavors. Yes. And and that like everything about the conversation so far is is full of that. So I, I absolutely appreciate the two of you. I, I was having the thought earlier as you were sharing, both of you, about how somehow life knows what to deliver us and, and what to grow in us so that when it's time, we're able to hold it and carry it. And then that's what feels like this project is for the two of you is like whatever you were able to develop seems to just magically be exactly what you need to carry and hold this project. And, and I think my, my question as we kind of move into the end of the conversation is what now, like what, what's next for, for the book is, is there more opportunity? Like I could see a film, uh, but you know, who knows whether that, <laughs> I think it would be a brilliant film, perfectly timed. <laughs> Susan's pushing us on towards that. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, first thing is, the first thing is to sell the Haggadah. Right. So that people all over the world are sitting around their Passover tables. Isn't it? And reading in the voice of our mothers. Dot com. That would be really make me very happy. Our website is in the voice of our mothers dot com. 
and we have a digital version as well as the uh, the printed version. And Passover is coming up it, it, towards the end of March, so uh, that's that that's the the first thing. Yes. Um, we do have a thought, Susan. I'll I'll let you talk about it. Yes. I have grandiose visions <laughs> of a continuing. Um, with the women of the Bible, both, as you say, Old and New Testament. And let's hear about Mary. Can you imagine you have a son? Um, or they said to you, well, you didn't, you were really didn't um, have this son in the usual way. You were impregnated by God. What does that mean to you? What, you wouldn't you like to hear what she has to say about that? Mm. And, and they kind of took away all of her sexuality and they kind of gave it to Mary Magdalene. You know what I mean? So all of this, there's so many stories to tell and so many wonderful ways to write it from people who are not exactly writers mm. in quote, air quotes, but have it inside of them to share what it is they want to share about all of this. So there's, there's that. And then in the voice of our mothers can go anywhere to anything. Uh, as Carol said, that we, you know, we heard people wrote about it in the Odyssey. What else? Up until today, there haven't been very many women's voices getting into all kinds of literature, all kinds of stories, the stories that are for indigenous people. What do those women have to say? You know, mm -hmm. not all not all women are still in the kitchen. You know, that's something. There's a little piece in here about um, Golda Meir, and she was smart enough to know to have her meetings in her house while she was baking cookies, because then she could make the men, you know, kind of put them put them in this trance, mm -hmm. <laughs> smelling chocolate chip cookies and getting work done. Mm -hmm. So we have so many skills and so much to share equally this is not about men are terrible women are great this is about the equality of the archetypes of the feminine and the masculine mm -hmm. and who they are and what they are um, and how they can be lived in every single day and that's what we want to teach it's what I want to teach um, my children and grand grandchildren. And so, you know, I hear a, a bigger vision and movement of, of a, essentially a platform for more of what came through Carol in this creative act of writing, yep. that, that there's all these other dimensions and domains and, and levels where the woman's voice can be empowered and, and creatively expressed. Mm -hmm. uh, is there, if they go to in the voices of our mothers.com, is there easy access in terms of an email, like for people that might be interested in collaborating or creating a, a, a sister yes. project, so to speak, yes. that's easy yeah, for them to do. Actually just, just talking about that. It's in the voice. Sing, singular voices. Sorry. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Um, which somehow feels really important to me. Yes. Um, so yes, we, I, we have a we have a segment on the on the uh, website called New Voices, and so far it's only my writing is in there. Um, but uh, I would love to start sharing and start with with, with people from anywhere, 
and and start um, creating whatever comes to us as as the new voices come. And that's that's an opportunity potentially for someone who writes to submit and then be be kind of featured on the website. Yes, beautiful. So the website also will grow into podcasts and ways of sharing and writing and all of that. Awesome. We're old, Carol and I, and not technically savvy, as you can tell by the <laughs> terrible lighting we are all in, the two of us are in. However, um, I'm hoping that there will be a, a slew of young people who can help with whatever skill they have to share this. And it will just keep growing and growing in, in, in all kinds of domains. Well, I, I've just deeply enjoyed having you both on the podcast, Susan, getting to meet you, Carol, getting to check in and, and speak with you again, uh, totally open to doing it again sometime. If there's any last words or, or invitations that you have, uh, feel free. And again, it's uh, in the voice of our mothers.com is the website. Uh, absolute pleasure. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you. We, we appreciate the opportunity and um, thank you for your openness and willingness to listen. It's also really fun, Delphin, because you were just starting the last time we, we did this. Mm-hmm. And you stayed with it, and and right. we're on Zoom. <laughs> and, That's and, and, and and you do it beautifully. You listen so mm-hmm. beautifully. Mm-hmm. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Beautiful. Well, we'll do it again. Okay. Have an, yeah, I absolutely will. Okay. Have a great evening to you both. Thank oh, you. Same to you. Thanks for joining, everyone. You are listening to the Conversations for Change podcast with Dolphin Casper.